tinfoil hat. Oh, what the fuck are you guys even talking about? Global controls will have to be imposed. And a world governing body will be created to enforce them. Welcome to Tinfoil Hat. We, we, we go deep, homeboy. Eric, open your mind. Drink from the fountain of knowledge. There's lizard people everywhere. That's some interdimensional shit. Wake up, Aaron. This is only the beginning. Dude, you just blew my mind. Good morning, Swarm! And welcome to Tim Paul Hat. You know I am. You know I'm here to do. I'm here to rock. Join me as always, Xavier Guerrero and Jay Nice, Johnny Wooded. How are you guys? Good, man. Good. Yeah. Good. yeah. Good. Johnny and I are a little under the weather, so um, yeah. we just want to, you know, say that. So, we, you know, even though, even though we're a little under the weather, we still came and rocked today. Because that's who we are, and that's how we go, right, everybody? Hello. Of course, let's go. Let's go, dude. Uh, we had we had uh, Ben Von Kirkwick on today, and he came and crushed it, and he did a great job. So we Good really time. appreciate him coming on and uh, 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 dropping the hammer on us and with some really good hidden history stuff. Guys, I'm going to be in, in Ohio all this week, so come join me tonight. I'm going to be in Columbus, Ohio. Then the following night, I'm in Cleveland, and then I return back to the scene of crime in Dayton, Ohio. Grab your tickets now. Grab your tickets, please. Because if we don't sell a ton of tickets, Daddy doesn't come back. And what happens is I show up, and they're like, yeah, man, it was great, because everyone wants to buy their tickets at the end. So please don't put me under stress. Buy your tickets. I would love that. Uh, then on June 9th, and we're in San Diego, we're doing a great show. And then June 17th, Tallahassee. And then June 18th, Jacksonville. Come get weird with us. Uh, guys, because I have been a little under the weather, I haven't done uh, a lot of my Rockfin stuff this week. My apologies. I will promise you to get back up on that. But all my premium content is available on rockfin.com. Just go to samtriplee.com. You can click on any of those boxes and you can uh, join there. It's only $10 and you get all of our premium content there. Uh, t-shirts, just go to samtriplee.com. Click the Tim Fall Hat t-shirts. Bam. You can get t-shirts. My cameo's there. Look at that. Bang. We're looking good, dude. Great way to support the show. The Tinfall Hat, only conspiracies telegram is available and the zero telegram for my spiritual show. All of my free audio you can find on Tim on samtriple.com. Tinfall Hat, Broken Sim, Cash Daddy's Punch Drunk, Union of the Unwanted, and then Conspiracy Social Club and Zero. All there for free for you to listen to. So uh, there's premium content, sports show, and free stuff for your ears. So go check it out. Uh, anything else, guys? Anything else? No, no, that's it. Uh, yeah. Check out check out our latest Broken Sims on YouTube. That was a good one. People love it. Check it People out. People are talking yeah. about it. People. Check out We Don't Smoke the Same. We just had a, a resale guy. So if you want to get in the resale game, he lets you in up on that. So go check that out. How to resell well. stuff? Yeah, he goes to the swamp meets and flea markets and buys like, you know, Johnny knows what's up with that. I love that shit. That's great. Go check out We Don't Smoke the Same available uh, wherever you listen to shows. And please enjoy the show. We go deep, homeboy. <laughs> Eric, open your 
All right, let's try this again. Uh, we're very excited. Third time's a charm. Uh, I'm very excited. The next guest on, or this guest on, we are. Uh, he's got a great website called UnchartedX.com. Please welcome Ben Von Kirkwick. How are you, buddy? Good, mate. Thank you so much for the invite. It's great to be here. Honor and a privilege to have you on. Thank you so much for spending a little time with us. For those who may not be familiar with you, Ben, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and where our listeners can find you? Yeah, so Ben Van Kirkwick from uh, Uncharted X. I run an Uncharted X YouTube channel primarily. I make a whole bunch of mini documentaries, I guess, that get into a lot of um, the mysteries of our ancient history, uh, some of the technicalities around tool marks, the things we see in Egypt, South America, all that sort of stuff. Uh, I post it all up on my website as well. As you said, it's Uncharted X, but but in general, everything's up there on the, the YouTube channel, which is just Uncharted X on YouTube. Thank you so much, man. That's great. Uh, what got you to start going down this journey? What was the first thing where you're like, whoa, something's not lining up? Yeah, well, it, I, I'm probably it's a similar story to a lot of people. I'd imagine it was, to be honest, Graham Hancock. So I, I had always been interested in ancient history. My mother was a history teacher, so I, I kind of had that um, that in my in my blood from an early age. I had a long career in IT, but I started following Hancock after I read his books. I saw his first appearance way back in the day. I think his first one on on Rogan's show. And uh, got the chance then to travel with him. So he, he threw out like, hey, I'm going to do research for his book, Magicians of the Gods in Peru and Bolivia in 2013. And I was like, you know, shut up, take my money, went down there, spent two weeks with him touring around there, looking at, at all of that stuff. And then I had the chance again, I got kind of got to know him a little bit and had the chance to travel with him through Egypt in 2015 as well, which was my first trip to Egypt. And after that, I, I was just like, there's, there's so much more here that, that, that can be explained. And it was kind of at a confluence of... You know, there's a lot of information that are in these incredible books by Hancock, by Boval, by a lot of other people. Uh, but it, a lot of that hadn't been pulled out yet and kind of presented in that new media method, you know, like on YouTube. And, and at the same time, you had this rise of a sort of commercial stabilized cameras and 4K, like high quality video equipment. So I thought, you know, there's room here to explore some of these ideas and take a fresh look at a lot of these sites in terms of filming them and, and really exposing these ideas to people on that on that kind of new platform with YouTube and it kind of snowballed from there. I started doing that and traveling for years and filming and, and diving into these topics. Well, you know, uh, hidden history is probably my favorite topic of them all, because if you study conspiracy, you go, what else are they lying to us about? And eventually you get to, Oh, our entire history has just been rewritten yeah. and and stupid. I mean, we see it happening in real time on Netflix where they have like different people playing that don't even look anything like the yeah. characters or, or the historical figures they're supposed to be playing. And that's being done purposefully. So, uh, yeah, you know, so funny. Crazy. I was just uh, I just got introduced to Action Bronson and I was, uh -huh. uh, you know, you know, so I'm I'm watching his show about ancient aliens and they were really getting into this stuff. And I was like, man, that's kind of crazy. Like there's things out there that just don't fit our timeline, our traditional timeline that we have been told. So where do you want to start, man? Where do you where would you like to go off? You know, you said some talking points, but where would you like to start? Well, we can we can get into a number of them. I, I like to kind of approach it from. Uh, the perspective that, you know, as you said, a lot of what we think we know about our history is, is, has kind of been wrong. And, and what I think there's a, there's been a real shift in, 
in the 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 formal sciences in this area so archaeology and history um you know egyptology over the last sort of 50 60 years we we had if you go back to like the gentleman victorian explorer some of the first guys as the industrial age started to explore some of these sites and really apply kind of that industrial age thinking and engineering principles to these mysteries guys like flinders petrie end of the 19th century a lot of these guys you know we still rely on their work in a lot of ways like some of these guys like 100 150 years ago are still the ones who have done the definitive measurements and surveys of these sites and in those days a lot of the discussions happened in those academic halls you know and in letters and they're in these societies and groups and if you read their work they were quite willing to admit when they didn't know something when, when something was mysterious and, and petrie in particular was famous for talking about things like tube drills and core drills and these 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 signs of advanced machining that happened but as as it as kind of that whole discussion moved out of the academic halls and into more of a public sphere in books and now particularly with platforms like youtube when you know idiots like me can, can get a voice <laughs> but it's 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 changed the nature of the discourse particularly from the academic side so now we see much more of a authoritarian i guess or, or a definitive uh, approach to it by academics where they're, they're really dismissing the idea that there is any mystery here that we know what happened and i think that's something as of a consequence of of the nature of this discourse changing they've been forced to react to some of this but the reality is there are still tons of unknown questions tons of contradictions tons of mysteries that haven't been fully explored uh, and the, there's a problem with that is because you have to be the only people that are allowed to really explore these things and to do the things that we should be doing to to investigate these mysteries i mean that's controlled by people like you know the antiquities department in egypt and then they partner with universities and it's that same old story it happens in a lot of fields of science if if you stray to outside the bounds of kind of that you know established narrative then you don't get funding you don't get you just kind of get shunned from that environment so I mean, there's tons of things we should be doing and could be doing in non-destructive ways to try and explore a lot of these mysteries, but it just doesn't happen because they just go, well, we know it was copper chisels because copper chisels is what we found. <laughs> so therefore everything was made with copper chisels, which is absolute nonsense. There are, there are huge numbers of examples of these incredible artifacts and incredible feats of engineering that occurred in the very earliest parts of ancient history as we know it. And even the whole civilization of Egypt itself is is something of a contradiction. I would I'd like to start there, like kind of with the old kingdom. So there was there was an archaic age. This is the mainstream story. The archaic age happened, then there was a pre-dynastic age, and then it sort of kicks off in the first dynasty, and that was called the old kingdom. And the strange thing about the Egyptian civilization is it kind it peaked it peaked straight away. So everything, the pyramids, the Great Pyramid of Giza, all of the Giza Plateau, you have massive megaliths and precision engineering stuff made from granite the valley temple like these huge feats of engineering it all happened at the very earliest part of um of that civilization according to kind of mainstream uh the, right. the mainstream timeline and then it, it degraded so it's like they they made these pyramids early on like the first five or six pyramids were the best ones they're the ones that are still standing and they kept making pyramids for thousands of years after that but they never achieved those heights and it's just it's a huge contradiction because it, it's not how civilizations work. Like our civilization, if you look at our technological growth and our path right. has, you know, we've ramped up to, we've gone from the stone age to the space shuttle and striped toothpaste. It, it, you know, it didn't go the other way around. Yeah. <laughs> Guys, we've seen so many people making ridiculous money from crypto, but did you know that it's easy for you to do the same? 
the Copy My Crypto membership site shows you the coins that YouTuber James McMahon personally holds and allows you to copy him. It's like having a big brother who knows what he's doing. You don't need to know a thing about crypto or how to invest. You simply do what he does. So let me tell you about James. He runs the Crypto with James YouTube channel, which despite heavy censorship, has over 17,000 subscribers and 1 million views. Since March 2020, he's told his viewers to buy 26 crypto coins. Had you put $100 into each one, it would now be worth more than $53,000. Of the 26 coins, his top pick of the year, a coin called Phantom, is currently up over 440 times from when he named it. That one call alone has retired a number of people, including guys in their 20s and 30s. Remember, this is public knowledge. You can go to YouTube and verify it yourself. So if you'd like to join the 1,300 members who copy James, then stop what you're doing and head over to copymycrypto.com TFH. You'll not only find proof of everything I've said here, but our listeners can get full access for just $1. You won't find this offer anywhere else, but act fast because it ends soon. That's copymycrypto.com forward slash TFH. That's TFH. Don't take this offer lightly. James is the real deal. Go visit the site now. I want to get back to something you talked about, about the academics and they're, they're, how they want to control the narrative. I mean, we see that with basically the media right now, right? I mean, well, you have you have more people working on more subjects than ever before, and they're coming up with with really strong conclusions based on evidence that was out there. But unfortunately, unless you went and found the book, right, yeah. you you, right. you wouldn't know about it. So now you got all yeah. these people spending times going through all of this information that was out there, but it was kind of kept away. And now new information's coming and new conclusions are coming. And they do not like that. They do not like right. that at all. They want to control the narrative. And we see that yeah. a lot with like academics. And, and another thing you brought up where it's like the official narrative is is brought out by the powers that be, right? Academic, epic, academics or uh, let's say the media or the government, mm -hmm. the, whoever the mm -hmm. power is, right? They, they make a statement and everyone has to work from that every right. time. And that is always the official narrative is always accepted by the masses. Nobody ever questions anything, no matter what information comes out. It takes so long to get anybody to move off that position. And it usually takes it a really couple does. of years, right? To get them to go, yeah. no, 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 this doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah, it's it's I and it's one of my major pet peeves too. I've been off mainstream media for more than a decade now, you know, like because it's it's the same thing. It's a, it's a controlled narrative. It's it's the it's the same establishment message that comes out. It's to to some extent like the nature of establishment is to resist change. I mean, that's that's its nature and and particularly in in this field in history, you end up I, I kind of relate it back with the academics to like, well, in some ways, they're kind of like priests in a, in a religion. Their, their sense of self, their sense of identity, their sense of personal power and authority is kind of derived from their position as these experts on on this story. And you know, there's, this this can happen in other fields too. But history itself and archaeology isn't really a hard science. You don't do like experiments like you can in chemistry or physics. It's a it's much more closely related to like language studies and in, in interpretation. They're they're looking, they're trying, mostly they're looking at describing the daily life of some of these ancient civilizations to us. And, but ultimately it's, you're constructing a, a picture or a story of the past based on very 
scant evidence. You know, you've got thousands of years of 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 civilization rising and falling and and deconstruction and then reconstruction of of these objects and these sites and their sense of power really derives from their interpretation on this story and so when you start threatening that story in the same way that if you were sort of starting like threatening the the holy word in in a religion uh a lot of these academics and people in power like they, they're going to take that fairly strongly like it's a personal attack on their uh on their identity so that's why you get such a strong response and that's why there's there's kind of been a real lack of of open-minded debate and investigation uh in a lot of these fields but I really do think that in the particularly the last 20 years there's been a tremendous advance in other fields of science that I call kind of history adjacent that should be having like a massive impact on this picture of the past that we have but it, it hasn't really <coughs> filtered down into the academic world yet but you've got all of this evidence like the the extension of the the human timeline like we used to think we were 50,000 years old now we found human remains that go back to around 300,000 years uh we know from you know our genetic um, um, past that we we split with the Neanderthals from a common ancestor somewhere maybe in the eight hundred to nine hundred thousand year range. We we have tremendous evidence for a cataclysm that happened at the end of a period called the Younger Dryas that was uh, around thirteen thousand years ago uh, that really shook the earth. It's associated with the megafaunal extinction, the, the you know all of the saber tooth tigers and mammoths and all of those things went out. And we also have these tales of cataclysm and 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 impact and all of this stuff in every culture in every ancient religion even in our current modern religions all the religions of the book talk about massive floods and fire and we now know that this stuff was a reality and the, the, one of the funny things is is in almost all of these examples you also ha you also have these ancient cultures all speaking of a of a civilization and of a people that existed before that time that were knocked down and they had to restart again yeah um, man this yeah. even shows up in yeah it's super yeah. interesting. And for me, and I'd love to hear your opinion, why are they afraid of these these timelines changes? Because that means that we, we're more special than they want us to know, that where we live is more special, our history is more special. They just yeah. want us to believe that we're just like monkeys and sneakers hurling through space. That's what I think they want. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. I, I, you know, I, I think there's a lot of it has to do really with that that reluctance to, you know, if you've been an expert. So it's kind of like this old guard in this academic mm. field, particularly archaeology, Egyptology, that are really tightly associated with this picture of our past, which, to be, to be honest, hasn't really changed in the last hundred years or so. Uh, and and that's that's they're just they're they're mired in that world, and there's there's a strong amount of resistance to any sort of change that comes into that. I, I, there, I can give you a number of specific examples, not all that. I think there, there certainly has been cases where things have been discovered that have been, that would have really shaken this story up that have been um, uh, hidden and have been um, kind of buried up. And uh, I can give you a couple of examples of that. But on the other hand, there's also, like I said, there's political um, positions of power that, that are being defended in a lot of ways. Uh, one thing I, I do see as a lot of hope going forward is that, I can't tell you the amount of like archaeology students and people that are in in the current system that are going to be these academics and these tenured professors of the future. Uh, they seem to be a lot more open minded. So I've got some hope that say in the next 20 years, as these these current students move into the establishment, I mean, they, they, they're being forced to reckon with the questions that are raised by people like Graham Hancock, and they have to deal with some of the uh, some of the new evidence that's come up. So I do hope that that picture is going to change. But it feels like 
you know, what is it? Planck's Planck's constant. It's like you know, science advances one funeral at a time. <laughs> when, 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 was the when was the last time that they actually changed something in a history book that you were like, okay, this might get the ball rolling? Was there a time where you're like, okay? So there's been one major huge discovery that that happened in particularly in the in the last decade. It's a, a site in Turkey called Gobekli Tepe. Uh, you guys may have heard of it. It's um, so there was you know our picture of when history and when civilization started has always been associated with like well around you know six thousand years ago. So four thousand ish BC, you've got the Sumerians and you know the, the rise of Egypt and away we go. But in Turkey. Uh, they discovered a, a series of sites. There's a whole bunch of them, and they're some of the largest megalithic sites on the planet. One in particular that's that's well known is called Gobekli Tepe. Uh, it it means pot-bellied hill. But uh, there was the German Archaeological Institute that started to uncover this, and they started to excavate, and they discovered a whole series of these megaliths. Like it's it's these big stone circles. There's dozens of them. It's a massive site. Some of these megaliths weighing up to 20 tons. Uh, clearly, the product of civilization. You you can't create sites of that magnitude essentially what would be a small city without civilization itself and what's interesting about that site is it was deliberately buried and they've they've so it was it they know from the chips and and how they've uncovered it deliberately buried which allowed them to sort of date it using carbon dating fairly accurately and it dates back to 10 to 12,000 years yeah. old uh, as the like kind of the the earliest the, the the youngest date so it may well have stretched for thousands of years before that uh, so that was that was a huge um, a huge discovery. It's a huge. It's a sets back the time of of civilization. It doubles at least that length. There's a whole number of other sites that have got similar results. There's a place in Gunan Padang, which is uh, which, funnily enough, was shut down by the government there because a geologist who was exploring it uh, brought up remains from a cavern inside this chamber that dated back more than twenty five thousand years ago. But uh, what was interesting about Gobekli Tepe in in Turkey is that uh, instead of acknowledging um, that this was uh, evidence of civilization that really set that date back. They they literally just, and you can see this on Wikipedia, which is a really sort of mainstream establishment source that, that can't really be trusted on topics like this, but they they literally just changed the definition of, of what it meant to be hunter-gatherers. So instead of saying, well, civilization started earlier, they just said, no, no, hunter-gatherers were actually pretty bored on the weekends. They wanted to get away from the women. So they went and just took up like creating megaliths and creating massive stone circles as a hobby. So they, they, it's, it's, it's quite silly. You, you can't do that sort of stuff without, you know, a huge population size that allows people to specialize in things like stonework. So you have to have organized agriculture. You've got to have all those other facets of what enables a civilization. And, and so Gobekli Tepe was a big one. Um, oh, but wow. that, and that's one Dude. shift. But the mainstream is yet to fully kind of acknowledge it. Um, you know, the, the other the other big example that I talk to that's still, it shouldn't be, but it is something still of a controversial topic, is this this cataclysm that happened because of a series of cosmic impacts around the Younger Dryas period. So the end of the Pleistocene age going into the Holocene 13,000 years ago. This is um, a, a tremendous amount of science has gone into this now. There's something like 150 peer-reviewed uh, papers behind it now. Uh, it is a lot of mainstream science that they're looking at. There's all these what they call impact proxies that they've dug up from archaeological sites that date these layers. So you have like shock synthesized nano diamonds, carbon spherules, black matte layers. So we know that there was this series of impacts and it, it contributed to the megafaunal extinction that we had around that time. And it correlates with all of these historical records and accounts, uh, including in things like the Book of Revelations and in, in 
uh, in, in the Bible, things like that. Uh, and, and it correlates with the genetic record of humanity, but it's still disputed. People don't want to admit that it happened. And to this day, the, the mainstream explanation for how, you know, 250 plus species of, of megafauna all went extinct is, is, is over hunting by, by, you know, paleo Indian hunters at the time, which is utterly ridiculous. It um, is to give you an well, idea. Yeah. I mean, I was going to say the, the whole number thing of, is not I mean, the number. Yeah. Yeah. Go on. I, I yeah, just want to say of... that I just don't understand why science like it seems like this whole thing is, uh, you know, uh, architects are, are, are weird in the sense that science tends to like make, you know, changes. They love to like find new discoveries right all the time. They love yep. to push yep. what was before them. And it seems like this 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 industry or this group doesn't like to do that. Yeah, it's it. it that's right. It's there's definitely a, a lot of resistance, and it's it's very frustrating because you know, for example, um, there's this one place that uh, I, I'm fascinated by. It's called the the Serapium of Saqqara. It's um, it's a site that's part of this big site called Saqqara in Egypt. Uh, it's it's near the the Giza uh, pyramids. And it's this underground cavern. Like it's a series of caverns that you could, these massively straight caverns and tunnels that you could drive a, a Volkswagen down. They're, they're huge. And inside this big series of alcoves and caverns, there's, there's 25 of these incredible granite boxes. They're made from a single piece of stone. Uh, they weigh up to 100 tons. So that they're not like built together from multiple pieces. They weigh around 100 tons. They're precision made. They're, they're, they've been measured by a number of people to show that they're absolutely beyond the capabilities of anything you can do with, with hand tools. Uh, and it's, it's not that many people visit it because there's not many hieroglyphs and, and things that are written down there. They date the whole site based on this, these, these really badly scratched glyphs. It's basically graffiti that have been put onto one of these boxes. But one of the things that we should and could be doing is we should be going down there with like LIDAR scanners and, and some of that, you know, $70,000, $80,000 LIDAR scanner, which is easy for a, a university department to do, wouldn't hurt it at all, uh, to go down and say, should be scanning these boxes. And if we scanned them, we could really start to define like how precise are they? How, how hard would this be to make? Like we could advance our knowledge of, of these artifacts and explore what it means for our picture of the past if we did that. But they, they just don't want to do any of that. They, there's really been very little actual uh, work done down there. So it's down to like, you know, punters and tourists that occasionally get in there with, um, you know, some, some measuring equipment. And I took an iPad down there that has a basic LiDAR scanner on it, but it's nothing like the resolution you'd need to try to advance this uh, our basis of, of knowledge. But there's so many of these types of examples where we could be applying ourselves. We could be applying our modern technology to really open up <coughs> the picture of the past, but I think there's some reluctance to do that based on what it would mean. I think it would mean basically over to, uh, throwing the upper cut over and, and, you know, saying that, okay, the, either the dynastic Egyptians, the people that are, that we say did this with basically primitive hand tools, like pounding stones, copper chisels, that type of stuff, either they had far, far more capability uh, and, and technology than we give them credit for, or they didn't do it and they inherited it which funnily enough is, is a story that sort of repeats itself throughout Egyptian uh, history. There's a strong thread of inheritance that comes through this. So what I think is going on in a lot of these places is that 
much of what we see, in particular the megalithic work, the massive work, the precise work, was most likely inherited by the dynastic Egyptians. And then they built, you know, thousands of years of civilization on top of that. Uh, we, and we know that they did a lot of work with primitive tools. There's, there's lots and lots of examples of these primitive. It's almost like a, it's almost like there's two industries. You see two forms of technology at work in Egypt. You have that primitive pounding stone, copper chisel. We're dragging this shit on a sled, you know, with people and we're standing it up. And then you have this other stuff, this other category of evidence that's often the oldest that's precisely cut. You, you can't fit a razor blade between these stones. They don't use any mortar. They're flat to within one one thousandth of an inch. You know, they're perfectly dimensioned. I've, even Petrie, there's a box at Lahoon that's perfect to within one one thousandth of an inch, which is like I think tenth the, the width of a human hair. It's it's unbelievable. Yeah, it is um, crazy. It's not man. possible to do with hand tools. Let me ask you something. If we're gonna assume, let's just say, because I think there is something to this, that. Uh, by the way, I couldn't find the word archaeology before, so my apologies to everybody. I'm, I'm, my fastball's a little off today, so I owe everybody an apology on that. But um, what I want to say is that aren't there like biblical ramifications of if if we go, maybe the Egyptians didn't build these pyramids? Does that throw off a lot of what we know through religion off a little bit who built uh who who was forced to build the, the pyramids and all that stuff does that change that story at all potentially i i'm, I'm not 100 percent familiar with kind of the the biblical connotations on this story i do know that that in one thing that has changed in recent times was that there was some there's a conception that slaves built the pyramids that's that's these days is, is more or less widely um disavowed i guess it's sort of changed people have realized that this is not an endeavor that could have been completed by slaves like this is this is you know skilled craftsmen that have probably spent lifetimes accumulating their their capability and um and techniques to do it so they have kind of moved a little bit away from the slaves uh concept but what i actually think it would it would validate it would validate a lot of of what's written in a lot of ancient civil ancient religions and text and in particular what the Egyptians themselves said, which is which is interesting, uh, that there what there was a, a previous like high technology high capability civilization that was likely global and so for example the, the ancient Egyptians themselves they called themselves a legacy civilization right so so they. There's there's a number of sources where they say that they were their ancestors stretched back more than thirty five thousand years in the past. There's a, in particular the Turin Papyrus. They talk about two periods of time that existed long before the dynasties as we know them ever emerged. One is called Zeptepi, which translates to the the time of the gods when the gods themselves walked the earth and they had all of this capability. And then after that's the the Shemsu Hor, which are the followers of Horus, which were these semi-divine sort of mystical beings with with magical powers that are a kind of some of the powers that are described you can you can equate to like modern technology or some form of, of of high technology and then only after that and after it had been struck down and sank uh then then there was a this sort of period of darkness and then the egyptian civilization as we know it emerged um i mean even the story of atlantis uh, itself comes from uh egyptian priests like we know that when plato talks about Atlantis. And funnily enough, the dating for that, when you go like Plato's ancestor Solon uh, talked to an Egyptian priest who told him the story of Atlantis. And the dating of it, if you go by Plato's dating, actually 
bang on directly correlates with the, the period known as the younger dries, like bang on this, this massive shift in global climate, uh, sea levels rising 400 feet, which is exactly in line with the story of Atlantis about the, the whole, the whole thing being sunk. It actually lines dead on. And, and we didn't know about this until I think uh, 2007 or so we started to discover the evidence for the, uh, the cataclysm that happened there. So it's a, it's an interesting story, but it, you know, it all comes to us from this Egyptian civilization. And, and even then, when, when, when that priest was talking to, to Solon, he said, you know, you Greeks have witnessed one cataclysm, we've witnessed five or six, like that's the length of that civilization that goes back. So there's lots of old stories and legends and religions and myths that, that sort of correlate this around the world, specifically what it would mean for the, for, for the Bible. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. I think it's super interesting, but you, you, you got it. Hey guys, I want to tell you about our friends at Fume. Okay, that's right. You got to check out Fume. Fume is a natural inhaler designed for better, safer, natural way to quit cigarettes. It's a no smoke, no vape, no nicotine replacement for the hand to mouth habit of smoking. Fume is made of 100% Canadian maple and uses cores infused with plant oils studied to curb cravings. They have flavors like peppermint and conquer with minty notes to simulate menthol cigarettes and other flavors like lemon berry bliss for a sweeter experience all of their flavors are 100 natural that means no harmful chemicals no artificial flavors and absolutely no nicotine you know i've gave i gave dana some uh, of this and she was blown away by how much it helped with the cravings okay uh, you know she needs it get off it cigarettes i tell her get on fume whether you are a smoker or an ex-smoker who still struggles with cravings, Fume is the perfect tool for you. It's time to create positive habits and quit naturally with Fume, and we're here to make that easier. Right now, if you head to breathefume.com slash tinfoil and use the promo code tinfoil, one word, you are going to save 10% on your entire order. You're going to save on the cigarettes you aren't buying and save on your initial purchase of Fume. That's 10% off your entire order when you head to B-R-E-A-T-H-E-F-U-M dot com slash tinfoil and use the code tinfoil. So, you know, this is one of the, this topic uh, opened up you know, another show I do, which is my spiritual show, but you know, the, the, the ramifications of who are these, these beings that used to live here. Do you have any thoughts on that? Because, you know, we get into Anunnaki and all that stuff. I yeah. love that. I mean, do you have any thoughts on that? Or are you just strictly into the I, architecture? No, I, I do. I, I mean, to my first inclination would be to say it was it was us or it was a, a form of, of us uh what's what's interesting though you know i so ancient aliens is a great show i, I like it it's i kind of treat it like a sword that cuts both ways in one way it introduces people to these some of these incredible mysteries you know um tiwanaku pumapunku all these all these mysteries but then it's it's always cast in this light of of aliens and ancient aliens and ancient astronauts and stuff what what's I, I think I think you can explain a lot of what we see by technology, and maybe it's a different form of technology. So if you look at our civilization, we've we've progressed down what I would call like an electromechanical approach to problem solving. We we have we solve problems in a very specific direction uh, of technology, and we've evolved down that route. But there's we all know that there's all these other realms of science. Like in a hundred years, in a thousand years, we're going to know 
so much more. And, and we're only babies in some of these fields that deal with sonics and, and resonance and, and vibrational frequencies. And one of the things that's an interesting possibility about those previous times is that the, the technology that was used to create some of this stuff may well have been in a field that we know nothing about today. It, it may be well just outside of, of our perspective, of our lens that we look at through uh, through history. It might be in fields entirely different. And one of those could be other capabilities of the mind, for example. This is something that Graham Hancock talks a bit about. Like it may be some other faculties that, that our ancestors had that enabled them to do some of this stuff. And there are legends and stories that, that go in those directions. But in terms of, say, Anunnaki and, and, and uh, what I would call an, an intervention theory, really interesting uh, research. I don't know if you've read his book, Lloyd Pye. Uh, unfortunately, he, he died a few years ago, but he has a book called Everything You Think You Know Is Wrong. And I love one that. of those things, <laughs> yeah, he, it's a great book and he has a, a bunch of really good lectures on YouTube that you can still see. But he talks about that intervention theory yeah. as in, and, and there's some really interesting genetic evidence that he gets into that, that this may actually be the case with, with humans ourselves. We may be the result of some form of, of genetic breeding program. We were put together as a species. There's, there's all sorts of anomalies. Like we have an extra chromosomal pair to, to all of the other great apes and, and, and uh and and our closest relatives uh it almost looks like we we've had some some um some of the genetic material kind of bonded together as if we've been created there's huge gaps in in our species timelines with the the you know the people call it the missing link but there would have to be 10 or 12 of these missing links to really understand and, and explain our evolution as a species so yeah i don't rule it out i think it's entirely possible um in the whole you know the breadth of space and the length of time that 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 an intervention may have have happened it it might have even been the nature of life itself might have been come from somewhere else to start on this planet or we may well have been uh uh seeded and, and created as a species it's 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 an interesting direction and there's certainly some evidence to support it. Uh, when you look into the technologies that these advanced civilizations have do you have any theories on things they could or could not do and things that they could do that we can't do now. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. So I would, I would say that there seems to have been uh, an ability for them to work in stone. Like, like we just don't, we can't do today. It's, it feels like the megalithic builders, whatever they wanted to achieve in stone, they, they could do like they had, you know, it's, it's, you, you have a couple of different avenues that that of evidence here. One is that you have the precise work, the pre, like the absolute precision of the fitting, and this is stuff you see in Egypt, you see it in Peru, Cusco, Sacsayhuaman, you know, not just straight lines, but curved surfaces that are perfectly matched to each other, made out of very difficult types of stones. You have very small vases, more than 40,000 of these have been found from the earliest part of um, Egyptian history that, that show clear machining and, and precision manufacture that would be very challenging for us to make today. And then you have stuff that scales right up to like over a thousand tons, up to 2000 tons, uh, single blocks and single pieces that have been manufactured and carved that, that are incredible, like perfectly symmetrical. And just uh, there was, they had an ability to work with stone such that it seems like they didn't need to create, you know, composite materials the way, the way I like to talk about this is like, if you look at how we would solve problems today, like we make skyscrapers and, and vehicles and, and spaceships out of like light composite materials, because we have to, 
save on weight and we want something to be strong in order to, to use it. But if you had control over kind of fundamental forces of nature, things like gravity, uh, if you could alter the mass of stuff, then you wouldn't have a need to create steel and in, in these in these composite materials because if you want something to last, you make it out of granite and you make it out of stone. Like nothing's going to last mm. as long as that. Our civilization will be gone within five, ten thousand years of, of it ending. No traces of it, but the pyramids will still be standing there. And you you scale this up into things like space travel, like our initial attempts at creating spacecraft. It's like again, it's lightweight, it's smaller. We have to get it up into orbit. But again, if you could control things like gravity and those fundamental forces of nature, spacecraft start to look like things like small planets. You know, you might have the moon itself could be something that was manufactured. That's a uh, that's a whole other rabbit hole because the, there's all sorts uh, of dude, weird shit about the what moon. What do you got, bro? Yeah, the, what the do you moon. got? <laughs> well, there's a fantastic book that I can recommend anyone pick up if they're interested in the moon. It's called Who Built the Moon? Um because there's a, a tremendous number of anomalies when it comes to the moon. Like the, the moon is, it's something like one quarter the size of the earth, but it's, it's only like one twentieth the mass. Like it's, it's, it should have, and it should have a much greater effect on our tides and on our system than, than what it does. Uh, life itself would never have evolved on this planet without having the moon, without the moon sort of creating intertidal zones. So where it's, it, you know, it's wet and then it's dry and it's wet and it's dry that's what's really the life itself kind of emerged from the specific density of the moon's really interesting um it's it's it appears to have a very hard surface but it's much it's got all these gravitational anomalies all over it as well like gravity itself changes in different parts of the moon uh one thing that people don't realize is that on that across the surface of the moon it's dotted with craters and we kind of know um the dynamics of how craters form so we we can we can apply mass and say okay so if a crater, a crater like say it's 400 kilometers across it should be this deep or it should be it should be in this range of depth and you've got some massive examples all over the moon because you know no atmosphere so the craters stay there no there's there's no craters on the moon that are deeper than i think it's like a one or two kilometers so whether it's small or large it's like they they hit the surface of the moon and that it just doesn't go in any further like this would not happen on any other planet, planetary body as we know it. And we have examples on Earth to show this too. So it's it's like there's a a hard shell on this moon. Yeah. And and you know, and it, it may well be have cavities on the inside of it. It's it's you know, you may have heard the story about NASA firing one of their um after they finished a moon mission, they they fired one of their probes into the moon and it, it basically vibrated and rang like a bell for twenty four hours. Um yeah, it's there's there are so many anomalies with the moon we, we don't have any we've never seen anywhere any other example of a system like ours like we, where we have a planet like this and a moon that's the same relative size of of the earth uh it's it's unique and it seems to be a perfect perfect setup uh for for life like it just wouldn't have happened without the moon you have and there's all the other statistical anomalies like it's when we get like those lunar or solar eclipses like in particular like a solar eclipse the moon appears exactly the same size as the sun because it's one four hundredth, I think, the size of the sun, but it's four hundred times closer. So it's it's relatively it looks exactly the same size from from our position here on Earth. There's some weird and, shit, and, man. There is, and we don't have any good explanation for the moon, like how it formed. Like there is really, if you go and dig into like how, what are the theories on how the moon formed, like none of them make any sense, and they they're all hotly hotly debated still. Like we just don't know 
how the moon got there. Uh, these these ideas of like impacts into the earth. The, the current theory is like, well, there must have been a tremendous impact into the earth that spun off all this material and only surface material, only like the lightweight stuff. But that would have left the earth spinning too fast. And then there must have been another impact to the earth from exactly the right angle to slow it down to kind of the current speed. It's just this improbable series of of theories and it's and there's you dig into the scientific community that kind of debate this and they they don't know like they're just like this is the still the biggest mystery uh one of the biggest mysteries in the solar system is we don't know how the moon formed or how it got there uh and there seems to be some other indications that it, if, if you were to design a system for life this would be perfect like having the moon would is a is an, is an absolutely necess, necessary element uh of that system so it's like was there some unknown creative agency that, that created the system back in the day? I, I can't rule it out. I mean, we again, the universe is at least, what do we say, 11, 12 billion years old. It's crazy, yeah, we, bro. We, There's so much with the moon. You could just do a whole series yeah. on just the moon, like the reflection theory. Good. That's an interesting one where it's just a reflection of, mm -hmm. of uh, uh, Earth. Like that's such an interesting theory right there. It's an energy collector. You know, it's of my theory that like the video game Pac-Man is about the moon and he like it chases spirits, <laughs> eats the ghosts, ghosts of spirits, eats and then they get reborn. I mean, it's super interesting, man. It's super. And that's what it we is. get into. It's like science. My biggest problem with science is that science never wants to get into the woo woo, like never wants to be like, maybe there's some stuff that like the laws of physics won't allow us to think about yep. and how super yep. interesting all that is. When we talk about all these ancient sites, how they all, all these pyramids line up on ley lines that perfectly, I mean like oh, yeah. the odds on that happening randomly is just ridiculous. And Latin American and Egyptian yeah. pyramids uh, all have the same kind of, um, you know, uh, symbolism and all that stuff. It's just, it blows mm -hmm. my mind. Uh, is there since you brought up ley lines? Is there any way that they can be an energy source or, or huge be... batteries? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a there's a there's a whole form of energy we don't know too much about it, but there's something called a telluric energy. That's telluric currents, and this is like Earth currents. We know that there's these tremendous flows of energy that happen uh, in the Earth itself, and and I think there's a certainly a possibility that 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 type of um, that type of thing might be involved one of the kind of one of the best theories on on what that what the pyramids may have been for is that they may have been some form of generator uh and chris dunn uh a guy i greatly admire that's published a bunch of um uh, books on these topics has something called the giza power plant and he's pretty much the only person in our era that has adequately explained every aspect of the great pyramid and pieces it into this theory about it being basically an energy generator and one of the things that you notice when you look at places like the like the pyramids and at Giza in particular is that those things are incredibly tightly coupled to the earth like they they're not I mean it's not just be, to be earthquake proof you have you have people walk across these all the time when they look up at the pyramids but you have these found what's most impressive I think about there is is the is the the bedrock work the foundational work that, that they laid down before they actually started building up in these pyramids you have these huge tiles, some of them weighing more than 150, 200 tons that are like these interlocking jigsaw puzzles 
that that lock it into the earth that that uh you even in some places have have bedrock itself where it, they haven't cut it off they've shaped it and it, it's sort of like this it seemed really important to be able to couple these very tightly with the with the earth itself uh and the other aspect that you get at a lot of these sort of the most megalithic and mysterious sites and this is true in south america as well is that seems to be some form of underwater underwater like water involved like underwater rivers or currents or groundwater or something happening under the ground that also in, in, involves water uh so for example at giza there, there are passages and tunnels that run all the way under that plateau um when we go there I, I have been down there quite a bit you can go down like 150 feet below the causeway there's a series of chambers you get right down and the bottom chambers like filled with water like it's 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 six feet deep in water and so there's then there are passages leading off uh towards the great pyramid funnily enough it's in this area it's called the osiris shaft and we've never explored these why we've never actually cleared them of debris and 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 gone and figure out where they went well because it's controlled by the the egyptian authorities like they don't they don't see it as being particularly important because they just classify that as as a symbolic tomb they say well this this is that's the thing everything in egypt and all of these ancient civilizations everything's symbolic or it's ceremonial there's there's nothing that could possibly be functional uh, or have an actual purpose i mean it's nuts you, there's a, a bunch of sites uh at giza at saqqara at abu sir at abu Ghraib, where you have like these courtyards where there's massive stones and basalt pavements, you know, they're like three feet thick. And underneath those is a series of these channeled blocks and all of this infrastructure that was used to pipe some form of liquid around underneath these sites themselves. And it's just like the, the way they explain this is they say, well, that was a, it was a sewer. It was a toilet. And, and some of this, and it's made from like rare and expensive forms of stone. So it's, uh, but it's, it's completely hidden from view, but because they've all been destroyed, these sites, you can see them in some of these places. So to me, there's some real clear indications that these sites had a functional purpose. Um, you know, there's a few other crazy aspects to some of these sites where you have melted stone, like as if there's basalt on these, on this site at, at Abu Sia, the basalt was, was cased in limestone. So it was like this inner core of this massive blocks of basalt, which is a really hard platonic stone. And it was cased in limestone, so you couldn't see it. And they're worked blocks, they're shaped. And on the inside, that interface between the limestone and the basalt, the basalt has basically melted. It's had its molecular structure change. It's it's flaking off in little pieces. And this is not something it this is something it can happen naturally only if, like say, a piece of basalt's been exposed to the sun for millions of years. But these are shaped blocks. Like somebody worked on them, they were perfect, and they put them in there and and you know something happened to them that that caused them to start flaking and melting as if as if they had been heated up and cooled a whole bunch of times you know it's stuff like that it's there's all these indications that that something else was probably going on on these sites and oh. then the dynastic egyptians came along and probably like a big cargo cult found that they were trying to you know, capture some of the significance and they maybe turned them into ceremonial sites eventually because they didn't have the capability of their ancestors but they were trying to emulate it uh, like a cargo cult would. Uh, and I think that explains a lot of what we see on these sites. And it's a fascinating avenue to explore and investigate. It's just too too bad that, you know, our, our authorities that have the ability to do this stuff don't actually want to do it. Can you can you talk about in the time of the Egyptians how how they would have appeared? I remember reading that they were 
<clears throat> they kind of shimmered in the light in the daylight. They were they were they they were called the lights. I think yeah, it must have been crazy. Can you imagine the, particularly the Persians when they the Persian civilization? So right. So when the when the before the casing stones fell off, like these, you have a couple of blocks left, and and the middle pyramid that they call the pyramid associated with Kafra still has some of these casing stones on the top of it. It's like it looks smooth, but back in the day, like particularly those two big pyramids at Giza were covered in these basically Tura limestones, this white limestone, very high quality limestone uh, casing stones that were highly prized and they were quarried and, and reused and, and half the mosques in Cairo are built with parts of them. But um, that would have they described as being so so uh, light, they, they would have reflected sunlight. So you've got this, you know, this Egyptian civilization's long dead and you've got these, the Persian empire starts rolling in there and you just would have seen these incredible massive triangles out in the desert reflecting light like and if you've not been to egypt like it's hard to sort of state how big those pyramids are like they're 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 massive it's mm. like 14 acres like the the base of the the great pyramids 14 acres it's it's an incredible sight and you can see it when you're driving halfway across cairo towards Giza, and this thing just appears on the horizon like holy shit that's and then to imagine them shimmering like, like that right would it, that that would be it, yeah. sam it sounds yeah. like they from what i read it sounds like they looked like you know that I guess it's like a solar collector as you're going in and out of Vegas. Vegas. <laughs> it, it sounds like that's how they appeared at a distance. This just Egyptians shimmering. Egyptians appeared like that? No, no, the, 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 pyramids. the pyramids. The pyramids. Because the, oh, because of the surface. really? Yeah, isn't that wild? That is wild. Damn, I thought you were talking about the people. I'm like, now we're getting interested. But, <laughs> man, that's crazy, dude. Yeah, I mean, so I wonder if the Egyptian government is kind of like, the NBA Hall of Fame, the Basketball Hall of Fame, where they want to stick to a certain narrative because of tourism, that if their narrative changes, tourism might not be the same as it was before, which to me, I'll be like, people want to come see the, the pyramids. Yeah. They're not like stuck to a timeline. Yeah, I you know, I, I actually think that if they embraced the mystery, it, it might actually even help because pe people are fundamentally curious and... I mean, if you just well, you know, okay, here's come and see this ancient Egyptian ancient civilization. We know how it was all done. Is less enticing that come and check out some of the the mystery of of this place and and try and figure out like how some of this might have been done. It's I think, I think actually embracing that mystery might might actually help them uh, with tourism. Not that they have a big problem uh, with tourism, but. Uh, there's people just, you know, fascinated by the pyramids. And once you go there once, you kind of, I go, I go there every year. I'm going a couple times this year. But, have, uh, have you gone? I mean, I understand it's quite challenging to crouch down and get deep into the pyramids. Have you done that whole trek into there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we, we, so if you just go to Giza today and you get your ticket to go into the Great Pyramid, you, they only open up like the, the Grand Gallery and the, what's the so-called King's Chamber. You can't get into like the subterranean chamber, which is this, 300 foot long little shaft you have to go down uh when we go there we do do like special we, we rent basically rent it out for two hours as a private visit and they open up all the chambers for us oh so, wow yeah, yeah you can you you got to kind of like do it like the, the pyramid crouch you sort of have to it's because it's like three and a half four feet square so it's like so this, no fatties it's really well, claustrophobic can, right you, it's yeah, it's real tight to get in there, and then it opens up in the chambers. Actually, the you, worst one's the bent pyramid out at Dashur. That's even that's even tighter. Uh, now, I understand um, that the entrance that you use on one of the pyramids, too, is an entrance that was created much later, right? right. Yeah, so it's the Great Pyramid. So that there's, 
the way you get into that, it's called um, Mamun's Hole. So there was a, a Caliph Al Mamun, I think around 1100 AD. I might have that wrong. It might have been earlier than that. But yeah, so he apparently, it's actually, there's controversy around this too. He, you walk up and he's like this hole that's been hammered into the pyramid. And it's, it's actually remarkable because he managed to somehow find the intersection between what's called the descending passageway that leads down to the subterranean chamber and the ascending passageway that leads up to the um, to the Grand Gallery. Like a lucky shot is what that chamber. is the equivalent of, right? Like an incredibly lucky shot. Very suspicious. I, th- yeah. I think I personally think that there's a much greater chance that uh, that was somebody tunneling out. I think that was somebody that. There oh was, wow! There was there, there were other entrances into this into the structure. And they were they had something that they couldn't get out those entrances, so they had to make a bigger exit. So it's a much bigger uh, passage than the other um, the other entrance because there is a main entrance, but it's blocked by these big granite plug blocks. And then there's also rumors in antiquity of an entrance that go that comes in right down the bottom, like in the bottom, the subterranean chamber. So you go down; it's three hundred feet uh, this passage. And about you know a third of the way down, it transitions into bedrock. So it's this perfect like laser straight passage that's cut into through the blocks, the masonry, and then the next the two thirds of it actually cuts into the the bedrock, the 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 rock of the limestone itself, and opens up into this big chamber. And then there's a passage that goes off into nowhere in the end, and then there's a huge shaft like there's this with this massive big well that goes down another like 30, 40 feet, and there's granite blocks down in there, and we don't know where that goes like nobody's ever excavated it and there there are rumors in in uh from antiquity that that may have connected to uh one of the shafts that connects up outside and there's again there's tunnels all over the place underneath the plateau that we haven't explored so i think it's more likely that that they were trying someone was someone had been in there and they were probably taking something out and they couldn't get it out those those passages so they hammered their way out because it's like a really really strange coincidence that he just happened to hit that one junction that's in there. You know, uh, it's funny you say that. Cause I remember, I remember hearing that story and thinking, boy, he's awfully fortunate to have tunneled in at that exact point. Cause I mean, if it, if you're to believe that, that story would make a lot more sense if there were lots of other sort of test test pits or whatever, you know what I mean? Like test holes. And then he yeah. finally found it. Right. But for him to just go in at that perfect intersection, that that's a, I never heard that, that he was trying to come out. That's amazing. Or someone it was may, trying yeah, to tunnel out. Yeah, not someone. him necessarily. Yeah, yeah. Because we, we know the structure was opened in antiquity. Like there, there were records of people going in there before he cut his way in, like way back, like the ancient Greeks and the people that have gone in there. So there was, there were ways into these structures. Um, it's just a lot of that stuff gets lost in time. You know, there's, there's, uh, you know, you talk about whether or not there's there's hidden knowledge. I mean, there's a whole. One of my favorite topics is the, the you guys heard of the, the labyrinth, the lost labyrinth of ancient Egypt. Let's hear it. So there's this, there's this, there's this incredible story. It's it's basically described as one of the greatest wonders of the ancient world. And this, this is described by people like Herodotus um, back in like 450 BC, Diodorus Siculus, the Roman, like first first century Strabo, Pliny the Elder. Like there's these records of this, a tremendous labyrinth that that was said to have exceeded the the pyramids in grandeur, like. You could have fit every single, like, give you an example, like Karnak Temple uh, down near in Luxor. It's the biggest temple, ancient temple uh, complex in the world. You could have fit Karnak Temple, Luxor Temple, all of the temples of the West Bank inside the labyrinth. It's, you know, we're talking like a thousand feet long by about 800 feet wide. 
it was it's just has all these historical accounts of it like a, it has something like 3000 rooms in it 12 huge courts and it was lost lost to time right it's just been lost to the sands of time we we don't know where it is there's been some 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 people have speculated where it was but uh you know it turns out we actually found it in 2008 there was a there was an expedition led by a guy named uh, Louis de Cordier. It's called the the, uh, the Matahar Expedition. It happened in 2008. They were partnering with the Egyptian Antiquities Department, and they found it. It's at a place called Hawara, and they were using a whole bunch of different ground-penetrating techniques, like acoustical stuff, ground-penetrating radar, all this stuff, and they found like what looks look like it's like a labyrinthian series of these massive worked granite blocks, and it's it's probably the biggest find of... Uh, the last several centuries but it was it was buried like it was it was the, the egyptian authorities um basically barred that they, they 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 squashed it like so when you do work in in egypt you have to partner with the um antiquities department and they control the release of information like that's part of their you know your partnering agreement with them so they and this is in particular was zahi Huas, who's the, the guy that was in charge of that department for a long time uh, squished or he basically suppressed the the report and then he threatened all of the members of the team with you know national security sanctions as in you if you ever come back to egypt if you release this if you ever come back to egypt you'll be arrested and put in jail um and that's they, they squashed it for some reason but uh it's it's out there at hawara like we have flinders petrie thought he found it in like the, the the late 19th century uh he he dug down like like sort of uh, like uh, 30 feet down and he found these big granite blocks and he thought well this is the foundation like i found the i found the footing the foundation of where this place must have been and everything's been taken he was standing on the roof of it he, he found this thing it's buried in the ground it's it goes down is there was described as having two levels it's probably the, the most amazing sort of uh feature of the of the of the ancient world and we've actually found it but but nobody wants to do anything about it because this um this whole uh, the report for it got squashed, uh, probably because of the issues that they've had with. Um, it's a political thing. They they dammed the Nile River back in the sixties, um, so you used to have this this flooding, this inundation of the Nile, right? And when they put in the Aswan Dam, all of that stopped, at least everything north of the of the dam. And as a consequence, the ground, the water level in the ground's been rising. So the water table at, at Hawara is at five meters, but the labyrinth starts at about nine meters. So it's like you know what is that like 20 it's it's whatever it is in feet but it's it's actually underwater so they've they, they would have a real problem on their hands i think maybe politically uh if this ever got announced to the to the world because it's like shit this is like the greatest discovery possibly ever made uh of of something like this but it's slowly being degenerated because it's underneath the, the groundwater but it's there and you know with enough money and time we could probably start to excavate it and figure it out but it's it's, how long would it take? Think to of it as something that rivals. How oh, long would it take to excavate something like project. that? Is there even like, oh, yeah, dude, a decade, right? Right. Huge. I mean, yeah, it would take yeah. for so long. Yeah, you, you. It's huge too. Like it's as and you can actually see where people have been digging all over that place. Like Hawara is an interesting site. There's a big pyramid there, made of mud brick. Funny enough, sitting on top of uh, uh, these sort of megalithic ruins. So again, it's like. They found something interesting. The ancient Egyptians found something interesting on the ground, and they built this mud brick pyramid over the top of it. Um, but it's a huge site, so you, you'd have to trench. You'd have to yeah. figure out how to fix the groundwater situation, and then remove, sorry, millions of tons of, of sand and get down there. But I, honestly, I think if they could 
there'd be enough interest in this because it's so well recorded throughout history and then it's just lost to time that you could probably raise the funds with um, institutions and universities to actually make a start at it. But I suspect... I suspect this this was a decision based on on politics. Like it's like they didn't want to get into the ramifications of of damming up the Nile River, and it's also in a location that's kind of a, a neck to something called the the Fayum region, which is an agricultural region. And there's all these these canals that are cut through it, so you've got water issues going to farmers and agricultural areas. So they'd have to get involved in all of that. So it feels to me like a political reason oh. why they didn't do it. But eventually, Louis de Cordier released the, the document on the internet. Uh, for about a year, there's a little site that, that had it, and then uh, and then that all got shut down too. You can still find it on the the Internet Archive, the Wayback Machine, but and I've got copies of the report now. But uh, I did a whole video on on the labyrinth. But it, that's that's like you know to me that's like one of the biggest shames of like hey we've we've got a chance to actually uncover what's probably the greatest one of the greatest monuments and structures ever made in history. We know where it is, but we just don't want to deal do with it. Do you think there's a lot of sites? Sorry, there's a lot of sites like this, but in South America, right? But instead of sand, it's vegetation. It's all the oh. forests and shit that they can't find. Jungle. The jungle, right? So yeah. there could be something like that in South America as well. We know there is. We we just, in fact, just in the last couple of days, there was another report. There's one of the again applying our technology. You know, we could figure this stuff out. They've they've just discovered a whole nother series of using LIDAR imagery. So it allows you to kind of see through the, the, the trees and the foliage to see the ground. They found remnants of cities, C- cities that would have equated the, the size of London in like the 1800s, like hundreds of thousands of people. And there are hundreds of these in the Amazon basin. There are really there's, there's ge- geometric earthworks. Oh yeah. So there's, there's perfect ge- massive earthwork, kind of like the mound builder cultures that you see in North America, like, like geometrically precise um, earthworks and the remnants of cities. You're talking hundreds of them. There's, I mean, it's a, it's an entirely lost chapter of of civilization that we know nothing about, that we're only now starting to uncover uh, in the Amazon basin. Like this, we have no idea. What, what there's there's been rumors. There's a story called the Lost City of Z. Really interesting um, story. El Dorado. Um, yep. Right. El Dorado. And. But but just recently, like in the last ten years, we've started to again discover that there's a lot of this truth to it, and we know there are just there must have been hundreds of cities in the Amazon uh, that have just been lost to the the jungle. But we're starting to see them with lidar now. So yeah, I mean, again, it's like we have no idea what actually happened in our past. We we have very limited information. It's like Hancock calls us a species with amnesia, which I think is a really cool quote. Like we. We got knocked out. Like we had this massive cataclysm only only thirteen thousand years ago. Like we definitely lived through it. We we as a species went through it. We had survived. A massive, we survived. We 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 were one of the survivors, right? And I mean, to give you an, an idea, I mean, it was the number of large animals that exist on the planet today. The number of species. That's the number of species that went extinct thirteen thousand years ago. Um, it is. It was a big, big event. Like, raise the sea levels. It's, it was the major contributing factor to raising the sea levels some 300, 400 feet. The world looked different then. Like, you have, you have incredible evidence of of these cataclysmic floods that happen up in the the scablands of eastern Washington State, where those where those big uh, the the glaciers, like the the, well, the ice sheets, the Laurentide and Cordarian ice sheets melted. They all flooded down into the Columbia and went out to the Pacific. And that's an incredible landscape that's still freshly scarred from this cataclysmic event that we went through so 
we just don't have any memory of what happened before that. You have to go back to things like, you know, the, the book of Revelation is a great example. Like they talk about, you know, and the, the, the fourth angel sounded his trumpet and a mountain of fire fell from the sky. Like it's literally describing cosmic impacts. Um, crazy, the Mahabharata dude. does the same thing. Yeah. It's crazy, man. It's crazy. Then you get into the, the whole Anunnaki stuff. And was it about genes and DNA and all that stuff? And it gets super interesting, man. It gets super interesting. I mean, it's always been interesting. We're beyond interesting. Oh, so what are your thoughts on the Sphinx? Um. It's a fantastic monument. It's so it's it's uh, the Sphinx is interesting. When I was uh, talking specifically about Gobekli Tepe, it kind of has a connection to that. So the Sphinx is one of those things that is often held up as proof of a much longer timeline, right? So you you, you guys may be aware that like you know Robert Shock and John Anthony West. So Robert Shock is a professor of geology from um, it's at Boston University, I think. So he was a, a tenured professor teaching like or a real academic. And John Anthony West was um, rest in peace. Uh, he he uh, he invited Robert Shock to come along and have a look at the the erosion on the Sphinx, and particularly the erosion of the enclosure that it sits in. So it's been dug down into the bedrock, right? There's these big walls around it, and the walls haven't been modified or changed by the dynastic Egyptians, although the body of the Sphinx itself has been. Right? It's been repaired in in Old Kingdom times. The Romans repaired it. We're repairing it. It's tough to see the the real sort of age of the body but on the walls of the enclosure you can look at the erosion and robert shock uh you know he's a geologist he knows about these things he dated the the erosion uh to at least like 12 13,000 years ago and in fact in in discussions with him since he did this this happened 20 years ago or so now uh he since said that it could be as old as 30 to 50,000 years like he it's because those are the it's rainfall erosion. So he's looking at these walls, and now, so the, the the Sahara and that area of of Egypt has been a desert for a long time, right up until about the end of the Pleistocene, the same period that that I've been talking about. Before that, it was lush, it was verdant, it had rainfall. Um, so it's it seems like there was tremendous rainfall. Maybe thousands of years of rainfall caused this erosion. So this was really controversial, and Rob, Robert thought he was onto something, and he went and presented it at a at a big conference with guys like, uh, you know, Mark Lehner and Zahi Was, and he kind of got sniggered at and laughed out of the room. They're like, oh, bullshit. And the famous quote from, uh, from Mark Lehner at the time, who, who is a, you know, Egyptologist, he said, show me the potsherds. Show me, show me where else, if you're saying this is 10 or 12,000 years old, where else, show me something else that's contemporary with this idea. That was his only pushback on that idea. And then, 10 years later, we find Gobekli Tepe, which is in Turkey. It's not very far away. Uh, it's a megalithic site. It, it's, it shows similar techniques in building that we see at the Sphinx, and it's dated to at least 10,000 years old. So it's like you wanted to see your potsherds. You wanted to see your examples of other like megalithic work. Here it is. Uh, you know, there, there's other correlations with the, the Sphinx. There's, um, so the, the idea that it may have been a lion uh, originally, obviously, the heads. If anyone who's seen it in person, the heads. It's quite clearly been recarved. Um, the head itself is doesn't show the same signs of erosion that you see on the body or on the walls. It's it's well and truly out of proportion uh, with the body. It's much smaller. So, assuming it was a lion back in the day, uh, based on the procession of the equinoxes, uh, you know, right now 
where the sun rises on the uh, on the um, on the the, the 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 solstice. It's I think it's the spring solstice. Um, you know, we're in the the house of Pisces, so these ages correlate. Like there's this twenty six thousand year cycle of the heavens, right? The Earth has this tilt, and it changes where the sun rises under what constellation the sun rises on that spring uh, solstice, and if you wind back time to about that same period, ten to twelve thousand years ago, it would have risen under Leo, so under the Lion. And funnily enough, those those constellations are something that is pretty common and and stayed the same across cultures and across time. So it kind of lines up as well with with the idea that you know it, it may have been a a marker, a celestial marker in time. It might have been created as a monument talking about this time. Um, Gobekli Tepe itself has a similar thing. There's a guy called Martin Sweatman who's published a book that, that basically looks at all the figures and the, the drawings on the pillars of Gobekli Tepe and correlates those to also sort of astro archaeoastronomical dating uh, of particular periods in time. And it's funny that a lot of them sort of do point back to this, this cataclysmic period, almost as if they were written as a warning, like, hey, you know, watch the heavens. This time, something you know, at this point in time, something bad happened. Maybe it's coming around again because all these things are cycles. You know, we uh, we tend to run through the same meteor streams that they think cause some of these problems. Every yeah, year. it's super so. interesting. Just like the time, like if you had to guess, what is the oldest structure on planet Earth? What would it be? It's tough to say. There, there is. There is some stuff, particularly in Peru. So there's, again, you have this same thing as in Egypt where you have different building styles that are layered up on top of each other. So you have you have these three styles in, in Peru and South America. And the top style, like on, on the top of everything is like the Inca work. It's like loose stone, small stones, mud mortar. Underneath that, you have that megalithic style, the cellular style that's so famous. It's like the Cusco walls, the Sacsayhuaman walls. But then under that, there's another layer. It's like a, a monolithic work. It's this, it's this, it's these, it's these shapes that are sort of carved into the 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 living rock itself. It's 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 not cellular. It's monolithic. And some of that stuff, man, the erosion on it is is is, it just appears tremendously old. Like, could be hundreds of thousands of years old. Some of it. And there are certain parts in, of of um of Egypt that show similar characteristics when you you know sometimes it takes granite and stone like that a, a really long time to to show signs of erosion so and there's would, some i was asking so you would say that the aztecs adopted quetzalcoatl and all those gods cuz they if they didn't build that pyramid someone built the pyramid so that when the solstice comes out the sun comes the snake comes down the stack yeah, that is 100 percent what happened they completely adopted it in so, my humble opinion yeah i mean that's i think that's the case in a lot of these cultures uh i i'm not so sure about a lot of the stuff with the aztec i think that is very likely the case with with those couple of pyramids and you have to remember there's also layering of civilization on top of that so a lot of this may have been renovated and then worked on carved on used but certainly for the Inca, like in South America, in Peru, a hundred percent they they uh, they uh, inherited that stuff. Like you can see, it's night and day. Uh, it's it's once you it's one of the things once you see it, you can't unsee it. There is an incredibly clear difference in in technology. So you got the Inca, are a good example. Like they, as a civilization, they flourished, right? They 
They they was like millions of them. They 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 had a huge civilization in South America. But but from start to finish, from when when kind of the Spanish arrived and started wiping them all out, they lasted about 150 years. That's that's not a lot of time to to create like you know uh, all of this capability and and in, and they attribute everything to the Inca in, in that 150 year period. But you have these vast differences in technology and in building styles. Uh, with the really inferior, smaller work being on top always of the much larger, more precise megalithic work. So it just doesn't make sense. Somehow they built this megalithic work and in, inside this period of 150 years of a single civilization, they lost all that capability and they couldn't do it anymore and they just started building in this small style. It doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, and, and certainly the erosion and what you see on these sites doesn't match that model either. So I think, yeah, they, they inherited this stuff. They found it. They, I think what happened in the case of the Inca was that they, they as they, they came up from the north, from the south, sorry, from like Lake Titicaca, and they probably found a series of broken down and, and demolished megalithic sites and eventually the city of Cusco itself, which was a, basically a destroyed megalithic city. And then they set to work rebuilding that and making it their home because they found it to be sacred. They probably found it to be as special as we do. Um, by the way, Cusco is like, if ever you get a chance, like that's, it's such a unique city. You just don't, there's nowhere else in the world where you have the layers of civilization built up in the streets you can walk down. You've got megalithic work, you've got Inca work, you've got colonial Spanish work, and then you've got modern work, and it's all stacked up on top of each other in these streets. It's absolutely incredible and, and really unique. Um, but yeah, I think it's a case, it, in the same way that we've inherited that stuff, I think the same thing just happened in the past. So, I mean, it, it just like we're this wherever we live is so much more interesting than they want us to know. And they just oh, yeah. don't want to tell us. And they, I, because for whatever reason, I don't know. I don't know why they don't want to tell us that. I would I would I would love to go down to, you know, Latin America and look at like all yeah. the stuff going on down there and all the. Uh, so they found hundreds of hidden cities in Latin America. Well, in more like in the yeah, I mean, in that's right in in the Amazon, uh, Brazil, Peru, Ecuador, like the, in those in those heavily forested parts of it, um, you have the well-established stuff that they found, like in the highlands, uh, in the mountains, in the in the uh, the Andes. That's Cusco, Machu Picchu, you know, Alante Tambo, Sacsayhuaman. But the, I think the evidence of civilization is is far greater. All of that stuff would be tough to get to, but. They're finding it by flying planes above it now and, and scanning with lidar. Um, yeah, it's 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 insane. Like that to me is like a huge. Like we just don't have no clue. We just there's a whole massive chapter of 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 civilization that we just don't have any idea about. We've got good, you know, we've got Egypt and South America and, and Peru and those areas, but that's not the same thing that the Inca that came along later. It's got nothing to do with what they're finding in the, the jungles uh, of the Amazon. Like that's something else. I think that seems to be associated with whoever built the mounds, you know, the serpent mound and the stuff you see in North America. There seems to have been a cult, like a, you know, a, a, uh, a some sort of culture that was doing this across the globe in the same way pyramid building culture was a constant. It might've been the same people like there's pyramids in China, there's pyramids in South America, there's pyramids in Egypt pyramids in turkey there's pyramids all over the place across africa too um it's 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 nuts and in fact some of this stuff and, and and again recent scientific work has shown that the whole idea of how we spread out as a species this the whole out of africa 
uh, debate, which is one that's always contentious because it's like you're a racist if you don't think we came from Africa. There's, there's, um, you know, there's, uh, there's, there's genetic evidence that suggests that we actually were more intermixed, and we crossed across the Pacific in in a, a huge population moved across the Pacific, well and truly before uh, anything came down through the land bridge. So really, the way they. Yeah, the way they explain this is the, the how how humans got into the Americas, right? So during the Pleistocene and the Ice Ages, you had the ice sheets that covered that access across from like Siberia and whatnot. And as that opened up, there's supposedly a land bridge that formed between these two ice sheets mm-hmm. and people kind of trickled down through there into North America, down through Central and then into South America. But turns out there are genetic indicators that correlate to like the ancient people of Australasia. So the Aboriginals and the Papua New Guineans and Solomon Islands and the people of South America. And that genetic marker isn't present in the people of central or North America. So you can't explain that any other way than there was a a migration across the Pacific at some time in antiquity. So there's all this, this stuff that's really challenging. It should be challenging our picture of the past and opening it up to more debate and investigation, but it, it just doesn't happen. It's like there's a, a real resistance to change. Uh, I'm going to ask you a crazy conspiracy question. You get, Are you into Tataria at all? Any thoughts on Tataria? The mud mud flood stuff? Yeah. Yeah, no, not really. <laughs> uh, it's it's interesting. I haven't, I'll say this, I haven't looked that deeply into it. I've talked to some people that are, that are like Tataria and mud flood proponents. Like you ever look um, into like, you should look into like the world fairs of the 1800s and like what they told us oh, yeah. was going on. And you're like, oh no, there's no way. They're like, <laughs> I think it's the world fair of 1872 or 1834. I'm not sure, but in Chicago. And they're like, yeah, man, we built this in two years. That's the Columbia World Fair. Yeah. Oh, is that it? Well, I mean, that's what it was Columbia. called, the Columbia, Columbia. World Fair. Oh, the Colonial in Chicago. Columbia. Col- but it was Columbia. in Chicago? The World's mm-hmm. Columbian Ex- Exhibition is what it was called. Uh, exposition, and it was in 1893. Yeah. 1893. All right. So, you know, out. they've asked architects, how long would it take for you to put this together? And they're like, just the design would take 15 years. Yeah, the design, it, it, but it was made out of like plaster, though we should say, all that oh, shit. Johnny, that's what. Well, that's, no, but no, but that, that's what they say is what I'm saying. That's their excuse. A lot of people don't believe that, and then I'm open to that too. But they say it's made out of plaster. I so Johnny, you think they built all those things out of plaster? No, I didn't say that. I said that's what. That's the explanation. It's not like there's no X. Ex- they're not saying they build it all out of stone is what I'm saying. They're saying they build wow. it out of plastic. Yeah, but it's super interesting. And, and it changes timelines as well, too. Like what is going on with that? It's it's. But it's, well, Sam, my question about that, that one, that one in particular troubles me a little bit because we did have photographs before 1893 and none of there are no photographs of these buildings that were in the world's Colombian exposition in 1893 before they were built for the world's fair do you know what i'm saying okay interesting point johnny interesting point interesting point point johnny i don't know man i just think it's uh i think that we have some crazy timelines that they don't want us to know about because they want us just to think that we're just dumb animals that are just that i I think you think we're dumb animals johnny (laughs) no that they want us to believe we're dumb animals it's i mean you see it every day dude that's it's that the agenda is 100% to divide us and make us think we're insignificant. 
Oh yeah, it's so crazy. <laughs> How many times have I said that in this episode today? That's so cra- no, man. I I I would love to go see some of this stuff. I think that's yeah. a goal of mine is to go visit all. Where are you going next? Do you have anywhere you're going to go next? Yeah, so I'm uh, uh, up into the Scablands with Randall Carlson. So we do with basically nice. touring the the mega flood landscapes in September, and then uh, and then October, and no, I'm doing a trip in October and a trip in November to Egypt. Back to Egypt twice uh, in two months. That'll be fun. Dude, now, when you, you when you to... return, do you re- visit the same places or do you go to n- different places? How does uh, that work? Would it, we do it? We mix it up a little bit, but a lot of these are, we do tours. So I, I have I, I've been running like a tour a year here. Oh, there, cool! I, I've got well connected oh, wow. with um, people in Egypt. Some of the guys that are in my videos, I, I feature them a lot. So, and it's a nice way to be able to do. We do a lot of special permission stuff where it costs like thousands of dollars to get a to go into places that are normally off limits. So we do a lot of that. Um, That's cool. On, on these trips. So yeah, we do we mix it up a bit though. But you know, if you're taking people to, to Egypt, you, you're going to see a lot of like the, the Giza pyramid. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Get to Karnak and a few of the, the highlights of the museum. That's, that's pretty cool. They're opening that new museum, but um, yeah. It's funny. I, I, I just want to say, I find it so interesting how different the Egyptian approach is to preserving and to, turning them into a tourist destination to our approach. Like, can you imagine what, the, how different they would be if they were in the United States? I mean, there'd be gift shops everywhere. Oh. I, I mean, do you know what I mean? Like I saw a picture of one of the interior rooms, I think, you know, like one of the, uh, the, the tombs. Uh, and it was, they just had like two, I don't know, there were dehumidifiers plugged in or something, you know, into the yeah. walls or portable yeah, air conditioners and like some, some floodlights on some, uh, some uh mm-hmm. you know look like temporary sort of uh stands you know and that was it you know yep. no no yep. no plaques on the wall or any of that shit so it's, no, it's that, i think that's a better approach if it was in america bro they would knock it down oh really yeah it'd be, it'd be pimped yeah, out right. though i mean look at slaves it built it slaves built it you can't have something that's, slaves you, that's built. right yeah <laughs> <laughs> it would they yeah, would knock it down and replace it with it a casino i mean look what they did to yankee stadium and that's like you know, I mean, that's like America's pastime. They yeah, it depends on room. where it was, Sam. If it was in the middle of nowhere, they'd probably let it be and turn it, you know, pimp it out and turn it into a. But if it was in valuable on valuable real estate, yeah, we gotta they we were, gotta build some done, offices here. What, they've done that already here. Like, there's been there's been historical like mound sites that they've basically knocked down and created golf courses over. Like, there's, unbelievable. There's been a bunch of them, and we do it in the West too. They just did it in uh, at Stonehenge. So they um no they basically. They change the horizon. So so all the alignment, so at Stonehenge, one of the things you can do at certain times of the year, go and look at it and see where the sun rises or sets. Yeah. They they built they they fucking built a a a, a parking administration building on the on on the skyline. So you oh shut up! <laughs> no way. Where the sun is, they put a building right there. It's like oh come on. Guys. So it doesn't work anymore. Yep. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You can't actually see it. Wow. You gotta go. Is that purposeful? <laughs> is that done purposefully? Well, Maybe. Yeah, now you can see the, their building instead of the sun. Of course, they building. did it purposely. Yeah, yeah. We, if, you could, a billboard. if you could have one mystery solved, what would it be? Your what would be the one mystery that you're like, and some uh, just beings like, here's the answer to your one mystery. What would it? Be? Man, that's a tough one. I, I, it, it. You know, I, I would want to see. If I really had to pick one, it would be how they created and moved the 
what would have been like thousand to twelve hundred ton statues. So there's a number of these things in Egypt. People don't. Everyone kind of knows about the colossi of Memnon, which are pretty impressive. Like this seven is still seven hundred plus tons, but there are like remnants of these statues in Egypt that were single piece granite. Like granite's not an easy stone to to carve. That that would have been like well and truly over a thousand tons, and you know they're 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 made with such utter precision. There's a few of these examples that are still, like there's ones at Luxor Temple that are that are four to five hundred tons, and they are perfectly symmetrical. So it's like you, I've seen people that you do experiments where we take a, a, a front on photo of the face, and you do a reverse transparency. So you mirror you mirror it down the center, and you flip it over, and you make each one you know, 50% transparent and it lines up perfectly. And they, people have done some measurements on this stuff. This is not a symmetry that you find in artwork, like, like, you know, um, Michelangelo's David, for example, like we were, we're great at carving. You can do amazing things in marble and with carving. But one of the things about precision and symmetry is that it's, you can't achieve those things with hand tools. There has to be some industrial yeah. purpose associated with them. And I also don't understand how they move that stuff around because you can, I think you can explain 100, 200 tons maybe uh, with primitive methods, but once you scale up past, say, 400 tons and you get into that realm of over 1,000 tons to 2,000 tons, which there are blocks in Baalbek and Lebanon, for example, 2,000 tons, you can't, you can't, it's not like a linear scale of difficulty. It, it gets exponentially harder, material failure. You can't use wood anymore. <laughs> like there's, I just, I, I, if I had to pick one thing, I think it would be that. It would be the, 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 1200 ton statues show me how you made that from granite or from conglomerate quartzite which is even stupider type of material that that changes in in hardness and um all this stuff too it's like you can tell it's been a lot of there's so much evidence in egypt of of inheritance and reuse like tons of these statues have had other names chiseled on them like later on and then we that's we like ramses the second like ramses the great notorious usurper of ancient monuments like he he wrote his name on everything and today we attribute him with all that oh stuff my that, god what is he puff daddy <laughs> yeah seriously it's <laughs> just like graffitiing his name on stuff and uh we say he built it now but he he clearly didn't and it, it's obvious for anyone that has open eyes that goes to look at this stuff like no no that's way older um in fact there are a bunch of examples where there's like four or five names on on a particular monument but you know that's how that whole science works, man. They date and relate everything based on the writing. Right. Nobody really, you know, and the writing can't be trusted in, in a lot, in, in so many ways. Uh, we just don't know how, how, how old a lot of that stuff is. But that would be the mystery I want to solve is like, how in the world did you, did you guys make? Because we don't do anything like that today. We, nothing like, I mean, other than like Mount Rushmore, but actually creating a thousand ton statue of granite and moving it around like they make it literally makes head world news when they they moved a 70 ton statue in egypt to the new museum and they had to put it on a specially constructed trailer and with this crazy big frame around it and they made a parade out of it and it was headline news around the world at 70 tons they were doing this on the regular with stuff that's over a thousand tons and we just have no idea how it happened there's no records of them doing it there's no depictions of them doing it then the egyptians didn't talk about it I, I you know i think they inherited that stuff and they built their sites around it because the logic was a, that a bunch of evidence that that's what happened the logic was that they built it to for as a tomb right but even if you built it as a tomb and you were born no that's not the no 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 well, the, the the pharaohs like that's what they tell you in high school is that yeah. it was a tomb for them but even if it was 
how long would it still take to make it? Will you have to ask to be built the second you were born? Well, that's a great point that you were talking Whoa, about. Whoa, XG, the, the look at you. <laughs> hey. Colombian. Well, you're talking about the Exhibitus World Fair that you supposedly built. That's a big problem with the Great Pyramid, you know. So it's supposedly built for Pharaoh Khufu. And yeah, he would, and supposedly built within, they say, 20 years, 20 to 25 years. Now, that, that damn pyramid has something like two and a half million blocks of stone in it. Average weight, three to four tons. You would have to, you would have to, this is, doesn't include, you talk about design. It doesn't include the foundation work into the bedrock, which there was years of work in that, probably years of work in the design. Just inside of 20 to 25 years, you would have had to have been quarrying, shaping, shipping, fitting, putting in place a block every five minutes for nonstop. For, for that period of time to make that actually happen it's it's there's no way that you can get that thing done inside of a single lifetime like it's just not a it's just does it's it beggars belief to, to, to when you really analyze like the logistics of trying to make that structure let alone the probably like is said years of planning and then years of bedrock work to prepare the site and it, that doesn't include like the, there's inside of it, there's stuff made of granite that's 70, 80 tons, all these beams of granite that had to ship from 500 miles away and lift up like three, 400 feet. Yeah, those granite nine, beams are like what? There's some that are meant to be like obstacles or something that like closed chambers behind, almost like Indiana Jones style. Like, yeah, it, it's, it's yeah. very, it's yeah, very it's interesting. Yeah, there's, so there's granite plug blocks in the uh, in the ascending passageway, uh, three or four of them, and then you have the actual what they call a king's chamber is actually all made from granite. There's a it, it transitions from limestone to granite, and there's a portcullis system. Uh, there were granite blocks uh, in there, and then in the the whole the whole it's like this geometrically precise chamber. It's two perfect squares put together. Uh, it, it by the way you could get in talk all day about the the you know pi and phi and the some of the constants of nature being reflected in that chamber huh. but it's made out of um you know granite blocks that are 70 to 80 tons each and not only that there's seven or eight layers of them stacked up on top of it so there's all these other chambers that are up above it they call them relieving chambers but they don't actually relieve any pressure or anything they're just all stacked up and it's all made from these huge blocks of granite that had to come from mm-hmm. 500 miles what away are your thoughts and, on the people who think that these rocks were poured. Geopolymer stuff. Yeah, I'm not. So I think there's some um, there's some evidence that some of that might have been done in some places in South America. I think the strongest evidence for geopolymer, there's been a bit of research done in a place called Tiwanaku in Pumapunku that suggests that some of that stuff could have could have could have been poured in um, uh, in its origin. I think there's still a lot of work to be done. I I. Uh, even in those places, you still see tool marks and precision, which doesn't always explain it. I, I have a real challenge with that theory, I think, for Egypt, though, I, for a couple of different reasons. Um, first off, we have quarries. So we have we have the actual quarries where a lot of these stones came from. And in some cases, like the unfinished obelisk in the Aswan quarry, like it's a 1,200-ton obelisk that's still attached to the bedrock. We We can see where they got the stones from. Same thing at Giza with the limestone stuff. You can see... Uh, the quarries and the shapes of where they cut these blocks from. Um, inside a lot of the limestone blocks, we still see strata layers. So, so there's different layers of strata. Uh, so in the ground, so they're still reflected in the blocks when they cut into the blocks and you look at them. That wouldn't be the case if that was like a mix that was poured 
Uh, and the same thing for granite. So uh, there's a whole bunch of different examples where you have, you know, granite objects that have veins of other material running through them. So you might have like these stripes of red or white that are these natural veins of material that are formed when when granite is formed. Um, which, by the way, you can't really make granite from pouring and mixing stuff together the way that's, you know, it's millions of years of pressure and heat. Like that's why it's such a, you know, good material for a kitchen counter. It's tough as shit. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, I, I don't, I don't think, I don't think the stuff in Egypt was geopolymer in nature. Plus, I mean, just logistically, every block is a different shape and size. You, you would have had to make a mold the way we yeah. do geopolymer today. Think of like bricks. We make one mold and we make a million bricks from it you would have to have made a mold for every single block uh, for that to have worked. And we just don't see that sort of uniform uniform yeah. nature of... of, of the, there'd have to be a mold. There'd have to be a mold. Yeah. There'd have to be molds, yeah. And, I know I know there are stories of people uh, going way back and thinking they were entering these, these pyramids for the first time and then finding that they'd already been completely cleaned out by someone else. Yep. What are there any reports about what are, what are the most reliable reports about what was inside of the pyramids uh, initially? Do, you, do, do we know anything about that? There's not a lot. That's the funny thing about the pyramids, man. When you're in them too, it doesn't feel like it's made for humans. It's just not everything about them. You, you, I, I've talked to a lot of people. I'm taking a lot of people through them. And a lot of people feel like you're walking inside some form of machine. It's not... There's just and there's not a lot of information to say that 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 they found it. There's really nothing in them. There's there's a box in them. So one of this weird theory that I have is like there was something going on of a functional nature that has to do with these with boxes, like these. I don't call them sarcophagus. They're boxes, same as the big boxes in the Serapium, the hundred ton ones that were supposedly for bulls, even though you could fit like half a dozen bulls in them. Um, they're either underground or in these structures. And it's a real common theme. And these boxes <laughs> often display these signs of precision manufacture. And that's about all we found. There's no hieroglyphs. There's no, you know, we know what, for example, we, we know what old kingdom tombs look like. Like at Giz, you have stacks of examples of old kingdom actual tombs from the Egyptians covered in artwork, got these statues, got all these drawings and everything about that culture and what they did to bury their dead and their, their nobles and their kings. We know what those look like. And that's not, none of these pyramids look anything like that on the inside. And we just don't, a lot of, so much of it, we just, we just don't know. There's no real records as far as I know about what was found in there. There's, you know. Do you have any intuition about it, the, it, it, sorry, please. No, I was just going to say that there's rumors. There's, there's a few rumors about other, it really comes down to like, well, there was a lid on the box or there was another a block here or there. And then people have tracked and, and found, okay, this block's missing. But in terms of like treasures and, and, bodies there's nothing we've not yeah. found anything do you have any intuition box. about based on its form what it might have been i mean i know you said a machine do you i mean do you have even a even a guess beyond that like about just based on the form like what the different you know descending and ascending uh shoots and ladders were, were for because uh, yeah. i find it really fascinating though if you look at the map of it you, you're right it doesn't it just like you said it doesn't seem like it was made for people to go inside of right well, I'd have to go back again to probably the work of Chris Dunn here and and, and say that my best guess, and it would it's pure speculation, is that I think it it, it may have been some form of of, gener of generator of energy okay. generator of what form of energy I'm not sure. That's probably the best guess. Again, it's it's very 
it's difficult to look at it because we, we, we're forced to kind of look at it through the lens of our own technology. And I think some of these answers probably lie outside of our current perspective and understanding. And we should be open to that idea to try and figure it out. That's, that's a big thing for me is like the, the technological perspective on the past. It could be like, I actually, I think there's a, in the, the wildest side of speculation, I think it's, yeah. it could be possible that all these sites were connected, like not just a pyramid, but the entire pyramid complex, the series of them, they may be connected to, to, you know, to Saqqara, to Abu Sir, to Dashur, like the whole thing could have been connected and functioning in some way together too. Like that's, if you want to go into the, the wildest end of speculation, I think that's, that's a possibility. The obelisks might've had something to do with it. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just, I just think we should be open to those possibilities and we should be using our capability as best we can to try and figure it out. Like just, that's the big problem. Like we're just not open to this, any other idea than it's just, Oh, it's ceremonial. And you know, it was, it's just purely for, um, you know, for symbolic purposes that that's the only answer that you're, you're permitted to give. Like there's just no other room for other explanations. And I think if we were just a little bit more open-minded, we might actually be able to learn a bunch of stuff not only just about these sites, but we might actually learn stuff that can help us. Like we might, we might learn some things about techniques that, and how to work with this material. How much is that? How much of that is the yeah. dogma of academia versus the sort of the, the pride that the Egyptian people take in, in, you know, their history as they've learned it. Well, it's, it's, it's tightly con they're coupled together. I'd say like that could, because these sites are in Egypt and it's controlled by the council of antiquities who also control access to the sites and what I could, what what sort of institutions can do work on them. Oh yeah, of course. Um, yeah. They're kind of coupled coupled together. So it's sense, you know there's the the, the, ex the expeditions or the experiments and the people that do research that have a different perspective are, are few and far between. A few of them have happened. Uh, occasionally they'll they'll relent, and we've had a change in leadership in the Egyptian Council of Antiquities. Uh, and that guy seems to be a little bit more open to some of these um, possibilities. And there's certainly been a little bit more work being done. For example, they're, they're doing this um, really cool experiment at the moment using cosmic rays to try and detect the, the big void that's inside the Great Pyramid. So you've heard about this. So they've, they've, they're basically doing muon detection. So these cosmic particles that slow down fractionally when they go through stone or through voids. And they're, they're, they're trying to use that over, it takes years but they're trying to use that to map out where they think there are these other cavities inside the great pyramid. So that sort of stuff, I think is really encouraging. Oh. Um, and it's, you know, again, it's the challenge is always like, what does it mean for history afterwards? Like some of these things may challenge these beliefs. And it's, I think there's a, there may be some sort of um, uh, drive to, if it does challenge things too much, then we dismiss it. That's certainly been the case for things like, you know, tube drills. Like I did, I did an hour and a half documentary on YouTube talking about tube drills. That's it. Just these, these tubular drills that are drilled into granite and these hard substances and looking at an analysis of the cores that they snap out of them and of the tool marks. It's, it's really definitive. Like it's, it's, it was clearly done with a technology that surpasses our ability to, to drill into granite wow. today, like five, something like 500 times greater penetration rate. Right. So it's like, but it just will not be discussed in, in the academic world. They will, they just refuse to even admit that this thing has a spiral groove going around it that shows how fast it was being drilled into, uh, into the ground. And it literally got to the point where what they did, there's a textbook that tried to explain it. And this is like the textbook gets used in universities. They tilted 
the photograph. So they took a photograph of this drill core and tilted it slightly to make the lines look horizontal. Wow. And that's that's where oh they got to with it. They just, it's like, why just, do this? Why? <laughs> why? It's like yeah. ego is not your amigo, man. <clears throat> oh, yeah. Well, you see the same thing with people defending yeah. the, the dates of... Uh, uh, these sites that they find on the West Coast here in America, you know, and people, I mean, there's so many arguments mm -hmm. about about the age of the, the sites just, you know, just down the road here. And and, and yep. the people, you know, you'll hear the academics yeah. when they hear the, the dates, you know, and I don't know the numbers, but they'll be like, oh, that can't be, you know, people who've never examined it will just uh, dismiss it out of hand, which which tells you that they're not dealing yeah. uh, square, you know, when when they dismiss things out of hand like That's that. That's right. It's called so the Clovis Doctrine, and it was it was yeah, exactly. established yeah. in North America. Yeah, Clovis culture. So it was Clovis first. Right? The, the Clovis, the Clovis doctrine, Clovis first. Right? It was the Clovis Doctrine. Was like there cannot be any uh, any human settlements prior to this. Like was it like uh, it was like ten thousand years or whatever whatever the Clovis culture oh, no. line is, and they would literally stop digging in these sites in the West and here and in the Americas. They would get to that layer in the strata and stop digging. Because they were like, okay, that's where the that's the Clovis line, and they would go under it. And there were guys, I forget Jacques, someone or others, something called the Bluefin Caves. Uh, this is actually up in Alaska. He found evidence of human populations and 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 civilization there for like twenty five thousand years ago, and he was literally run out of his career. Like he was laughed out of the room, and it it drove him out of the career, and like he went into depression and all these sort. He had like that's just just the ridicule that he suffered for even daring to suggest something that broke that Clovis doctrine uh that's been a real problem in, in archaeology in, in like the, the mafia and it keeps they keep finding sites it is yeah it's it's an old boys club it, it, it that's definitely how it works and it's just you know you've got the the is it the san uh, san diego the mammoth site that that, yeah. may, that may be as far back as 130,000 years it looks like there's been tool use oh my god yeah. amazing yeah oh my but, god the Clovis doctrine was a big problem. It still is to some extent, a big problem here. Like you could go to a lot of I'll these archeological sites and keep digging. <laughs> I'll fight him, bro. Is he alive? Yeah. I'll fight him right now. I could probably fight for charity, dude. Yeah. Okay. I'll fight. Give me a list, bro. Give me your kill bill list. I'll do yeah, the I'll work. Ben, you came, you saw, you crushed, you crushed, Ben, you crushed. You did a great job. Yes. I was a little under the weather and you came and you dropped the hammer of the gods on us. It was an excellent episode. I really enjoyed it. I look forward to having you back on. If you'll hang out with a couple, uh, three degenerates again, we'd love to have love you to. back. Um, so you want to check out his website, go to unchartedx.com. Ben, thanks for coming on and we look forward to doing it again. Love to do it again. Thanks so much, Sam. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. We go deep, homeboy. This is only the beginning. Dude, you just blew my mind. Tim Foil hack. Tim Foil hack.